Okay, keep your eyes closed. Okay. I want to show you my first ever painting. Ooh, all right. Okay. Open your eyes. Oh, that's a lot of colors mm -hmm. <laughs> and shapes. So be honest. What do you think? Well, uh, I like how if you switch to Geico, you could save hundreds of dollars on car insurance. Oh yeah, that's that's true. Yeah. Here, why don't I hold your paintbrush while you call them? Geico, because saving fifteen percent or more on car insurance is always a great answer. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, everyone. This is Johnny Tan, author of From My Mama's Kitchen, Food for the Soul Recipes for Living. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio Show. My guest for this morning is Alex Kajitani. He is the 2009 California Teacher of the Year and a top four finalist for National Teacher of the Year. His book, Owning It, Proven Strategies for Success in All of Your Roles as a Teacher Today was named Recommended Reading by the U.S. Department of Education. He has a popular TED Talk, has been honored at the White House, and has been featured in numerous books and media outlets, including the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric. Alex and I will be discussing his latest book, co-authored with Amy Newmark, titled Chicken Soup for the Soul, Inspiration for Teachers. 101 Stories About How You Make a Difference. The book provides our educators with the inspiration and positive reinforcement they deserve every day. Good morning, Alex. Welcome to From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. How are you doing this morning? Hey, Johnny. So good to be on your show. Thanks for having me. I'm doing fantastic. Wonderful. It is a pleasure to have you on the air. Chicken Soup for the Soul, Inspiration for Teachers. It's a wonderful, heartfelt read. The book reminded me of the teachers that made a difference in my life. So congratulations on its release. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, it's just been an absolute uh, honor to, to work on this book with, with Amy Newmark and Chicken Soup for the Soul. I am so excited about just having the book get out there and really just to inspire teachers and people who want to be teachers as well. Fantastic. Let us start by getting to know you a little better. Please give us a quick walkthrough of your life from childhood to the present moment. Yeah, that's a great question. I, uh, I I sort of think of my life in three acts, really. And uh, I was <laughs> born in I was born and grew up uh, in Southern California, and so I uh, I attended schools mostly in Irvine, California, and uh, absolutely fell in love. You know, being a, a California kid with water sports like swimming and water polo and surfing, and so pretty much grew up surfing uh, around Southern California and uh, then was lucky enough to go off to the University of Colorado uh, for college for a little little, little change and, and to be in the mountains. And, and then after college, I really had a chance to do some traveling all over the world. I got to yeah, go pre, uh, pretty much all over Southeast Asia and Asia and Europe and South America and Central America. And, and that really started to broaden my perspective. And I I saw some things and, and had some experiences that just were absolutely amazing and that really opened myself up to kind of the wider world out there. And, and what was funny was that the whole time that I was traveling, I knew that I would be sharing those experiences one day. And I didn't exactly know that they would be in a classroom, in a math classroom with middle school students, but, uh, but I knew that, that the perspective that I was gaining was something that I absolutely had to share. 
And then in the third act, you know, I sort of became a teacher, and uh, now I'm living back in Southern California. I've got a wonderful wife, Megan, and uh, an 8 and an 11-year-old child, and uh, just been uh, teaching for the past 15 years and really helping to spread the joy and the, the motivation. And now I'm traveling around the country doing a lot of speaking and professional development for teachers and for parents really about uh, keeping students and teachers motivated. And uh, all of that has brought me to this moment right here to be on this show with you. Fantastic. The interesting thing about what you just said is the fact that you really didn't, right after high school, rush to college, get an education degree, and start teaching. You went on this sort of a world venture to learn more, not necessarily with the intent of learning more, but it's a combination of having a good time and still learning something new. So at what age did you go back and decide to be a teacher? So I was actually, uh, I had gotten, I, I, after college, after traveling, I actually got a job mm-hmm. as a social worker. Uh-huh. And um, the pay was so bad that I actually had to get a job at night bussing tables in a restaurant. And so, you know, in two hours, I'd watch these waiters make more money than I made all day as a social <laughs> worker. And uh, not, not to sway anybody away from the social work field, it was, it was a lot of fun and very gratifying. But I ended up, uh, ended up getting into the restaurant business and managing a restaurant up in Santa Barbara, California. Uh, and then at about, I think it was at about age 27 or 28 where I said, okay, you know mm-hmm. what, I, I think I might actually be responsible. I've start to be, I, I'm, I'm now responsible enough to show up at a, uh, at a job every single day and every morning at, you know, early in the morning and, uh, and be around, you know, really our most precious commodity, which is children. And so I went uh-huh. back to graduate school down in San Diego, got my teaching credential and master's degree at about age 27, 28. I think I started teaching, my first teaching job was exactly when I was 30. The reason why I brought that up is because sometimes we are a product that is constantly being shaped by the journey that we take. And some of us are very defined right after high school, college, and then that's it. And some of us need the little experience, the exposure. And I'm sure in hindsight, the fact that you had that chance to travel and then be responsible for people in the restaurant type setup, it makes a big difference because then it polishes up your people skills, your leadership skills, your sense of apathy in a way too. And then you realize that, wow, that's something different. I know being in the restaurant business because I was in it for 18 years, then you find that natural ability, the leadership, the teaching aspects of life comes to mind. I guess that shaped you to where you're at in terms of pursuing your career in the field of academia. Yeah, it's funny how things work out and how skills transfer. You know, I I always say that I I use my restaurant management skills every single day in the classroom because really, you know, everything everything that I learned about restaurant management from how important it is to engage the customer within 30 seconds of them walking into the restaurant Mm -hmm. to the importance of keeping a clean floor to really just managing the environment with everything from are the windows clean to is the music at the right level and things like that and and really paying attention to to how things are presented and how people talk to each other all of those skills went right into managing the classroom and i always say you know dealing with an unhappy customer 
absolutely prepared me for dealing with an unhappy parent when they would drop <laughs> into my classroom. And so, you know, every, every skill we learn, whether it's from traveling or from working or from just a single conversation that we have, can easily transfer into a skill that you can use in the classroom or really in any leadership position that you take on. Fantastic. And I agree with you because we expand the concept of the actual teaching in the classroom a little bit because it is not about the ABCs in the textbook. It is about the environment. These are the things that your sense of perception sort of really focus when you're in the restaurant industry. And then you realize that it's not about the food. Tacos are tacos. Right down the road, they serve the same taco too. But if it's served in the dirty restaurants, nobody's going to go there. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And and that really is what it is, is, you know, you can, you can really tell a well-managed environment within, you know, within seconds of walking into a classroom, just like you can when you're walking into a restaurant. And so, uh, yeah, it's just been really just a fun journey all, all the way through. Fantastic. Let's come back to the fact that we're all students at one time, and I think I'm still a student, even at my age. How were you as a student? You know, I was actually very good as a student. I I just absolutely loved being in school and I loved, you know, being around my teachers and learning and you know, well, well that was nice. It actually uh sometimes is the problem when really good students like myself become teachers because I sort of walked into my first classroom teaching experience with a bit of an expert blind spot, as they call it. And so one uh-huh. of the things, you know, you know, one of the things that I had to really learn to do was to, to recognize and, and even appreciate the fact that not every single student was going to walk into my classroom, you know, with supportive parents already mm-hmm. sold on the importance of education. Not every student walks in really thinking or wanting to go to college. And so it really is... Uh, it really is a challenge a lot of times, but one that that has to be overcome to really be able to understand what it's like to struggle as a student, to be able to understand what it's like to, you know, have to either work really hard or or be patient enough until you understand the content or or the material. And so I always encourage teachers, you know, to never, just like I, I encourage parents and teachers to never say, I was really bad at math, I also encourage them to never say, I was really good at math, because whether we're good in school, whether we're bad in school, we don't want to put that on our students. Instead, what mm-hmm. we want to do is, is really approach the students as they are, take them to where we know that they can be without any of our preconceived notions about our own experiences in school. I mean, I grew up in Irvine, California, some of the best, best public schools in the country, but then mm-hmm. when I began taking on teaching jobs, I, I really was drawn to teaching in high-poverty neighborhoods. And that's a totally different culture and one that you need to adjust to, not just as a teacher, but as a, a human being with your own life experiences. You brought up a very interesting point because the ABCs are still the same, whether you're in a private school, home school, or in a public school. It's, it's the environment that contributes to the student's well-being and the student's retention span, don't you think? Absolutely. You know, it's uh, one, of, one, of the, one of the missions that I'm on is I'm on a mission to get every kid in America to master their times tables so that they can be confident in math and in life. And so, you know, as I'm sure we'll talk about, but as you read mm-hmm. in my story in, in Chicken Soup for the Soul, you know, the times tables are the times tables. Eight times seven was 56 20 years ago, 
And I don't exactly know what's going to happen, but I'm pretty sure that 20 years from now, 8 times 7 will still be 56. But what we were able to do is recognize, hey, you know what? Kids aren't necessarily pulling out the flashcards and, and le- sitting down with a parent and learning their times tables that way. So we were able to put the whole program online, and we created multiplicationnation.com, and so kids can sign in now and have very engaging videos, and I'm the instructor who takes them through, and you know, so that they can master the times tables. And so the actual skill, just like you said, the ABCs, the skill mm-hmm. is still the same. The approach is different. It's, you know, we've adjusted the approach to make it more of a, a tech-centered focus, which is going to where the kids are already. And we're actually able to make it, you know, a lot more engaging than just sitting with a teacher or sitting with a parent or a tutor, memorizing their flashcards. But, you know, whenever, whenever possible, I always like to say, stop trying to take the curriculum and forcing it into the students' lives. And instead... Mm-hmm. Take the students' lives and see where it fits into the curriculum. And when we fit that, the students are naturally more drawn to the academic content, and they immediately see how the academic content affects every single thing they do. Instead of teaching math and then spending a lot of time trying to convince them that the math is cool and this is where they're going to use it in their life, instead start by talking about their life and then bring in the math, and the connection becomes much more natural and effective. Fantastic. Can you share certain things that the common challenges all teachers face each school year? Ooh, yeah, that's uh, that's a great question. I mean, there are really so many. I I think the first common challenge that so many teachers face is, is, you know, really, how do I connect with every single student? I mean, as a middle school teacher, I taught, you know, five, six classes with as many as 30 students per class, which is, you know, really like up to, you know, 150 teachers a day, uh, students a day or so. And the truth is, by the time we get done teaching the lesson and taking attendance and, and assessing students and all of those things, there's often very little time left to really spend one-on-one with each student. And so... You know, I write a lot in my book, Owning It, about how to connect with every student, even when you have very little time. But that's really one of the main challenges, I think, is how do I not just teach them the academic content that we need to know, but how do I really connect with students on a level that they feel is, is authentic mm-hmm. and is real? I would say the second or a second challenge is that te- a challenge that teachers specifically face is how do I maintain my own work-life balance? You know, when we look at the reason why teachers leave the profession, you know, number one reason teachers leave the profession is they feel a, a real lack of administrative support. But the number two reason is just simply burnout. So many mm-hmm. teachers that I talk to every single day that, I wor- that I've worked with are just feeling burned out, especially as the school year goes on. And that's why I'm so excited about, you know, this new book, Inspiration for Teachers, is because they can take this book, they can open it up to any page, they can read a story, they can get energized or re-energized, whether it's for the rest of the year or the rest of the week, or even if it's just to get from, you know, if they read, they can read a story at lunch, and that'll help them get through the rest <laughs> of the day. Uh, and, and, and that's just something that I think is really that maintenance of work-life balance. It is so easy to always 
be teaching, to always be thinking about our students. It's almost an obsession for most teachers that I know of, really thinking about how do I deliver this lesson or how do I connect with this student or how do I get, you know, a, a student who's hungry the food or the resources that they need. And so that's a big challenge. And and I think, you know, a third challenge really that we as a as a system, I think, face is, you know, how do we really continue to support teachers and how do we recruit teachers? How do we, you know, how do we basically keep them in the profession? And so that's another thing that I've really been devoted to as well is providing really top quality professional development for teachers because we've got to keep learning. We've got to keep growing. We're devoted to have, helping our students learn and grow. So how do we keep doing that as well? Sometimes I do, you know, keynote big, huge conference, education conferences mm-hmm. with thousands of people. And that keeps teachers motivated. Sometimes, you know, I do small professional development, working with teachers in, you know, in teachers' lounges and cafeterias. And sometimes we just hand somebody a book like Inspiration for Teachers and say, here, I got this for you because I want to keep you motivated all the way through (laughs) the school year. Very interesting. The other side of this coin is I'm sure you've heard of this. People would say teaching is the easiest profession to do because Technically speaking, you don't literally, quote-unquote, work eight solid hours in a day. You're off on the weekends. You're off three months out of a year for the whole summer. Life is good. So what more do you want to ask out of it? And ironically, teaching also in the sense that today's day and age, in a lot of work out there, it follows you home. But teaching is something that you can compartmentalize and leave it at the school. Is that true? Yeah, I think that might, I, I shouldn't say no, that, that may actually be the, the greatest, the single greatest misperception about uh-huh. teaching and, and, and the teaching profession. I always like to say teaching is not just what we do, teaching is, is what we are. And so imagine, a law, imagine society thinking that a lawyer is only working when they're actually in the courtroom arguing a case. Imagine society thinking that a, a doctor is only working when they have a patient on the surgery table and they're performing surgery. There's no way that a teacher is only working when they are in front of students, you know, running a classroom. Mm-hmm. There are mm-hmm. so many, there's preparing for a lesson, there's assessing students, there's everything from, you know, paperwork to creating lessons and things like that. And so most teachers that I know, the majority of teachers that I know, they're working very hard all the time. I mean, they're sitting at their son's Little League game grading papers. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they, it, it's just one of those professions that you're always engaged with it and it is always following you. My busiest time of the year as a, as a speaker and as a presenter are the summer months because that's mm-hmm. when teachers are going to their conferences. That's when they're, you know, recertifying, getting recertification mm-hmm. credits. That's when they're doing so much of their work. And so, you know, there are times when teachers actually aren't working, uh, but most of the time, the, you know, those times are <laughs> far and few between. And, and most teachers that I know are working all the time. And so that's just one of those misperceptions, I think, that 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 society can sometimes hold. But I also mm-hmm. get the feeling, you know, when I talk to when I talk to parents, when I talk to other people who are in our community, but not necessarily, mm-hmm. you know, teachers, they they're starting to get that because they really see how hard 
the teachers are working and how uh, and how diligent they really are. That's interesting. I'm so glad you brought up all the information because teachers are actually like athletes. You do a lot of out of the classroom preparation just to be in the classroom for three to four hours a day, but there's a whole lot more of work that's done off-site, basically. It's like an athlete. They don't get paid $25 million just to go play one game. It's the <laughs> preparation to play that one game that makes the difference. Yeah, it's a good way of thinking about it. You know, just like the, the lawyer or the surgeon analogy, you think about uh, – Think about, you know, even like a professional runner or something. They, mm-hmm. You know, imagine if they were only getting paid for the, uh, you know, the 17 seconds that they were sprinting or something like that. That's right. But yeah. You know, it, and as with, as with most professions, you know, professionals, which teachers most certainly are, there's so much preparation that goes into, you know, the times when, the times when we're actually, you know, performing or, or competing or on stage. Right. Wonderful. How did Chicken Soup and you ended up partnering in writing Inspiration for Teachers? Oh, yeah, that was just a phenomenal opportunity. Back in 2010, uh, we were actually meeting with, uh, I was at a meeting with all of the state teachers of the year. We sort of had had, uh, regular meetings throughout our our year of service. And so um, Amy Newmark was working with Tony Mullen, the National Teacher of the Year then, on a book Mm -hmm. called Chicken Soup for the Soul, Teacher Tales. And uh, all of the state teachers of the year were invited to submit an essay for that book. And so uh, I, wrote about, uh, I wrote about how I became the rapid mathematician uh, in that story. And, uh, Amy and, and Amy came out to one of the meetings, and, and we got to meet her. And, and she and I just uh, kind of sat across from each other at lunch and started talking and uh, kind of instantly formed a, a bond and a friendship. And so... Few years, uh, several years later, I had an opportunity to get involved with their literacy-based anti-bullying program, mm-hmm. uh, Chicken Soup mm-hmm. for the Souls Hallway Heroes program. I get mm-hmm. to uh, be the on-camera teacher trainer for that program, and that's just been an absolute joy to work on that and and really help curb the bullying problem that we have in in schools and and in in society. Uh, and so, you know, just through those dialogues and working together. Amy, uh, you know, approached me about doing a new book for teachers, and so it's just been a passion of mine, which is motivating and inspiring teachers, and so it was just a a natural, perfect fit, and we have had the best time. I mean, the stories in this book are absolutely amazing. I think Chicken Soup for the Soul got, you know, thousands upon thousands of submissions of stories to be in this book and and we were able to limit it down to really some of the absolute best stories I've ever ever heard and read and so not only has it been just an absolute blast working on this book I I also feel like it's really been an an obligation and a responsibility to to pick stories uh, that are fantastic and that really embody what it really means to be a teacher and share them with the world. I mean, the the stories in this book are not, you know, really fun. They're not all fun, neat stories where everything works out perfectly in the end. They're the real, sometimes raw stories that really happen to to, to students mm-hmm. and to teachers. And so, as you're reading this book, you know, you're gonna you're gonna laugh out loud. You're gonna cry some some really good tears, but you're really gonna be let into the sometimes rawest, most authentic, and real 
experiences of what it really means not only to be a teacher but to be mm-hmm. affected by a teacher to be inspired by a teacher and and that's really been the best part of of working with chicken soup for the soul fantastic you're listening to from my mama's kitchen talk radio i'm your host johnny tan and my guest is alex kajitani he is the 2009 california teacher of the year and a top four finalist for national teacher of the year we're discussing his latest book co-authored with amy newmark titled Chicken Soup for the Soul, Inspiration for Teachers, 101 Stories About How You Make a Difference. Alex, will parents benefit from reading this book as well? Yeah, I think so. You know, the truth is that parents really are a, stu- a student's first teachers. I mean, whether, whether we like it or not, we, I, I'm a parent of two kids. I have an 8-year-old son and an 11-year-old daughter, and, and parents really are a student's first teachers, first teacher. And so, you know, there's really a lot of parallels between what it means to be a teacher today and what it means to be a parent today. And, and you know, the, the reality is that every teacher has got, has, needs to have some parenting tools and strategies in order to be a really great teacher. And every parent needs to have some great teaching strategies and tools and inspiration in order to be a great parent. And so, you know, you read about a time when a teacher just couldn't get through to a student, but they brought in their dog and realized that they were able to connect with a student through, you know, through their shared love of dogs. And then uh, that's something really that a parent can learn from that teacher. And, And so a lot of a lot of ways that we are explaining things, that we're getting students excited about things. A lot of times when we are pushing the students outside of their comfort zone, you know, to make such a difference, those are all things that we as parents are doing every single day. And so I would invite parents to pick up a copy of this book, you know, learn, read, learn. And I would also encourage parents to grab a copy of the book for you know, their favorite teacher or for their students, their child's teacher. I mean, there is no better investment than you can make in your own child than to give them a highly motivated, effective, and inspired teacher. And so, you know, like I said, the book is good for parents, and the book is great for parents to give a copy to their son or daughter's teacher. And uh, as luck would have it, uh, in two weeks, it's Teacher Appreciation Week, so there's no better time to give this as a gift. <laughs> Wonderful. I would think parents are actually the first teacher the student encounter because yeah. there are things in life that the parents has to teach, and you cannot outsource that. When the student goes to school, they may be listening and learning the ABCs of a particular course of subjects and so forth, but parents are, in all actuality, are the teachers of ABCs of life. You know, as, as, much as, I, as much as I didn't want to believe it growing up, I see now, you know, as, as I'm sort of in, <laughs> in the middle point of my life, I see now absolutely how much I have become my own mother and my own father. And not mm-hmm. necessarily because they were standing in front of me, you know, directly teaching me things, but just because yeah. of who they were and, and, and who they are. And that's just, it's so true. You know, as teachers, yes, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll, teach your, I'll teach your child the quadratic formula or I'll teach them the times tables. But how they walk in and whether or not they are willing to approach those subjects and the mindset, that comes directly from how they're being taught at home, whether directly or simply by watching how their parents are approaching tough topics. 
So true. By the way, we're going to cut that, what you just said, and get it to your parents so that they appreciate it. Oh, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Wonderful. Did you learn something special in putting the book together? Oh, geez, I don't even know where to begin on that. But I, I will tell you, I mean, absolutely. You know, you know, one of the things that stuck out to me the most about so many of these stories was one of the themes that really ran through a lot of the stories in this book are how much somebody, a student, really came to appreciate the time that a teacher pushed them a little bit harder the times that a teacher took them a little bit out of their comfort zone or a lot out of their comfort zone, mm -hmm. the times that a teacher really said, you know what, you may think that you're capable up to this point, but I know and I believe that you're capable beyond your wildest expectations. I mean, there, you know, whether it's a story about the time that a, a teacher, you know, really pushed a, an athlete to go back to summer school and, and finish the class in order to, you know, to, to be academically successful and not just successful as an athlete, whether it's the times that a teacher just sat with a student because they knew that they could break through with them in order to help them, you know, finish their homework or do well on the test or whatever the case may be. But the times that a teacher really pushed someone, to, the times that a teacher said, you know what, there's there's what you are and there's what you can be. And I'm going to do everything that I can to make sure that you become the person that I know you can be. That's really what stuck out to me the most was that as teachers, we have this, this not only a responsibility, but this innate sort of desire to help push students to really be so much more than sometimes they can even imagine. And I think that was one of the things that really stuck out to me the most about this book is that that's what teachers are doing mm -hmm. every single day. Wonderful. Alex, I've selected several stories from the book as talking points for this morning. Can you mm -hmm. please give us a short rundown of these stories? Let us start with the story in Chapter 1, The Power of Each Other. And this story really moves me. It Takes a Village by Mara Somerset. Oh, yeah. Mara's story is phenomenal. I mean, that was, that was one of those stories where I was sort of hanging, hanging on the edge of my seat. To, I, I kind of couldn't put it down until I figured out, until I learned about how, uh, how the story ended. But, uh, yeah, she, she really talks about, basically, she talks about a, uh, she talks about a student of hers and, um, or I think it was I think it was actually her daughter. That's right. It was her daughter, and her daughter got involved with, uh, with a boyfriend who was addicted to drugs. And so you know, really, try this struggle that as parents we have and as teachers we have, which is wanting to help but not wanting to push too much and not wanting you know the the student or the or the, the child to push back. And so she really talks about this process of how a team of teachers comes together in order to help this girl uh, through this relationship, not get involved in drugs herself, and, and ultimately be successful. I don't want to give too much away, but, uh, but they basically, this team of teachers comes together in order to help this girl. And the story is just really this powerful reminder about how, you know, when we, when we come together as whether it's as adults or as a community with a shared interest of helping 
our students and our children. We can just do absolutely amazing things, but we have to take the steps necessary in order to come together and let that person know how appreciated and valued that they are. I love that story. I do too. The reason I chose that story is because with all the things going on these days, how teachers being perceived as parents, are they an adversary or are they an ally in teaching and educating the kids? I remember growing up in Malaysia where when I go home and tell my mom my teacher did this to me, the first thing she did, she whacked me and says, well, you probably deserve it. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah. Somewhere along the line in the sense that it's for the betterment of the student. And so yeah. if it takes a team, that's what it's all about. And this story really points out the fact that the teachers and the parents can come together collectively because it does take a village to raise a child. It really does. It really does. And this story just illustrates that so beautifully. Chapter 2, Teaching with Heart, No Excuses by Jenny Ivey. Oh, yeah, that story, that, that, that sport story actually just kind of spoke straight to my heart because she really talks about this, this you know, this, almost, this, almost this cliche that we've all heard mm-hmm. in education about, you know, the dog ate my homework. And, and so she sort of really what that story is about is, is a, a cha- how a teacher's perspective can change so drastically over the course of even just a school year. And so, you know, as teachers, we often, you know, Jenny walks in and thinking she is, she's sort of got teaching figured out and she walks in with this no excuses attitude. But when she really stops and starts to listen to her students who are really living in this high poverty neighborhood, and she really starts to listen to all of these things that these young, young students are dealing with, she really starts to realize that while doing homework and getting your homework completed is important, it may not be the most important thing. You know, for a, for a student who is, wor- who is thinking about where their next meal is coming from, for a student who, who is thinking, you know, where am I going to sleep tonight, getting, getting all of your homework problems, you know, getting number one through 20, aw, all of the odd problems, are, you know, it may not be the highest priority. And so she ends up uh, starting, a, you know, providing the students with an opportunity to do their homework uh, after school in her classroom. But really what she does is she gives them a, a to be safe, a place to, to get nourished, uh, and a place to, you know, really just be safe and, and be successful. And that really is just a, a great story, again, about how oftentimes we go in thinking one thing because we're the teacher and we come out absolutely as the student, learning that things aren't often, are often much, much different than we think they are or that we think they're going to be. I chose that story because a long time ago, I learned how DNA may contribute 30% to the success, but the overwhelming 70% of that success actually comes from the environment. Is the environment ideal? Is it a beautiful incubator to help you to succeed? And this story certainly touched me from that perspective. Interesting. Yeah, I could see that. Chapter 3 the Teacher Who Taught Me to Teach, The Ripple Effect by Janine Ledford. Yeah, that's a great story as well. Actually, I know Janine. I'm a, I'm a great friend and colleague of Janine. She, um, 
Janine is a music teacher up in Los Angeles, just one of the most phenomenal music teachers that uh, that I've ever ever had the opportunity and the honor really to meet. And so, you know, she really talks about this. You know, being a student, she takes herself back to being being a student in a music teacher's classroom. And you know, Janine is. Uh, is a very strong African American woman, but she talks about what it was like to have this, you know, this white male teacher who just had this love of music and who taught them, you know, all sorts different forms of music, everything from jazz and classical to hip hop and 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 just all the various styles of music and and she talks about you know just what it's like to to really have such respect and excitement for your teacher to where you're just you can't wait to get to class every day because you're just wondering you know what what tie is he going to wear is he going to wear the the red tie or the tie with the music notes or the funny faces and things like that and really what she does is though she the story really helps us bridge that you know, when you find something that you love, whether it's music or math or whatever the case may be, once you, once a teacher is able to transmit that love to you, you can never go back to when mm-hmm. you didn't have that, that love and that knowledge. And in Janine's case, she went on to be, you know, an amazing teacher. Janine is actually the California Charter School's Teacher of the Year a few years ago and, and was named a, a, a Bravo Arts Educator and just as, you know, now one of the most most highly recognized music teachers really in the country and it all started with this one teacher who had this love for music and was able to transmit that that love to mm-hmm. her and so often that's exactly what we're doing as teachers you know we we're taking whatever it is that we love and and we're transmitting that love to our students so that they can either you know use it to become a teacher themselves or just uh you know, have a better life or even just get through a tough moment when they're able to draw on some wisdom or some knowledge that we shared with them. That's a just a wonderful, wonderful story. It reminded me of one of my teachers in high school. He did not really teach me in terms of in the classroom sense, but he was one of the teachers that I run into from activities in PE and other things that we do. He was just a jovial, happy-go-lucky guy. The opportunity came up for me to really speak with him was when I was accepted to college to come to the United States at 18. And I went up to him and told him, well, Mr. Ho, I have something to tell you. I'm about to leave Malaysia to go to college. I was so surprised. He was really happy. He told me something very, very important to this day. When I speak, I tell people his story. What was surprising was he told me, he says, Johnny, I hope you don't mind me telling you this. When you get to the United States, if you decide to hang out in Chinatown or with the Malaysian groups and so forth, don't go. Stay in Malaysia. Wow. Yeah. Because all the formulas you need to learn will eventually trickle down to Malaysia. When you go to the United States, learn the culture, assimilate, learn everything. Don't forget where you came from. Your competitive edge is your culture, their culture combined together and create a third culture. Interesting. I thought, whoa, that's interesting. So I followed his advice. And when I came to the United States to go to college at LSU, my first roommate was from Alexandria, Louisiana. He was studying petroleum engineering. And then afterwards, my roommates were students from all over the world, and we had a chance to really plug in and connect and get assimilated and study. That comes back again to the concept, the environment contributes to your education as well. 
the ABCs are the same, but there's a whole lot more of education than the actual classroom ABCs that you'll be learning. And so this particular story impacted me from that perspective. Oh, good. Excellent. Very nice. Chapter four, Making a Difference, Everyone Deserves a Second Chance by Bradley Hall. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bradley Hall's story was, uh, you know, Bradley Hall's story really was an example of exactly what I was saying early, earlier, which is we've got to stop trying to take the curriculum and mm-hmm. forcing it into the students' lives and instead take the students' lives and, and put it into the curriculum. And so, you know, the, the author, Bradley Hall, was, was working in, uh, it was like a juvenile detention center and was working with students and, and stopped to really listen to one of his students and, and what his student was really wanted to do and was really passionate about and, and found that the student really wanted to work on cars and that was, you know, was a dream of, of this student's. And so went out, got uh, got bought an eighteen dollar book, I think on on Amazon about auto repair, and brought it to the student. And first of all, the student was totally blown away that somebody would actually spend eighteen dollars on a book for them. Uh, and so that ended up being just a real a real point of connection for for the teacher and the student. But then also took that book and just devoured it and. And again, just this example of when we find out what the students are interested in, when we take the students and their lives and we really find out what drives them, then the ABCs, then the, you know, the academic content becomes much easier to teach because we've got mm-hmm. that direct connection. You know, we often, we often think about, okay, how do I, you know, how are students c- connecting with the teachers and how are students connecting with each other? And when we pay attention to this, I guess third leg, uh, you know, of the triangle, which which is how are the students actually connecting with the curriculum? Then mm-hmm. that you know the real magic happens when when all of those connections start taking place. And so yeah, just just love that story, and and also just a good example that you know no matter who you are, no matter what your life situation is, no matter what you know choices you've made in the past, you can still be a student. You can still be a learner. You can still envision a life that is different than the life you have, and you can work for it. So true. I chose that story because it's so important that people need to understand you only stop learning when you chose not to learn. Yeah, I think so. I'm still yeah. a student, and I'm sure, respectfully, you consider yourself a student. <laughs> and so we continue to learn every day. I was just helping my daughter with her science experiment, uh, science project yesterday afternoon, uh-huh. and we sort of hit that point where, you know, it was a fifth grade science project. I, I didn't know what to do, and she didn't know what to do, and my wife didn't know what to do. So I was like, oh, man, we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to go look this up on YouTube and figure this out. And, but uh, yeah, there it was, you know, here you got my wife and I who both have master's degrees along with our daughter trying to figure out this solar oven that she was trying to make. But it was just... Uh, it was just, you know, sort of beginner's mindset and learning in action. So true. So true. Chapter five, the first year. This is a wonderful story, a Mother's Day gift. And I know Mother's Day is coming up shortly. I love this story by Jessica McIntosh. Yeah, Jessica has just a really great sort of natural way of, of writing and, and telling the story that really is about, you know, uh, just 
how students often see us not just as teachers but also as as parents as well and so one of the students gives her a, a mother's day present you know just basically because you know the student just recognizes how much parenting how much mothering that teachers actually do in their classroom every single day and so she was you know just really touched as a teacher to to receive this this gift which you know just clearly came from from the student's heart and again you know being a parent being a teacher are just inextricably linked and you you really whether you're whether you're a parent you're teaching all the time and if you're a teacher you're parenting all the time and so that was just a just a just a great delightful story so true by the way you're listening to from my mama's kitchen talk radio my guest is alex Kajitani. He is the 2009 California Teacher of the Year and a top four finalist for National Teacher of the Year. We're discussing his latest book, co-authored with Amy Newmark, titled Chicken Soup for the Soul, Inspiration for Teachers, 101 Stories of How You Make a Difference. I'm your host, Johnny Tan. Chapter 6, My Teacher Changed My Life. My Teacher's Gift by Tom Krause. This is a poem, and you don't have to read the whole poem, but the reason why I chose this particular story is that it basically summarizes everything that sometimes we as a student take for granted. And not only that, as educators, sometimes we don't realize how much of an impact that we do on someone else's life. Please share your thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, let me just, I, uh, like you said, I won't read the whole poem, but let me, uh, maybe I'll just read a, sort of the first mm-hmm. few lines and, and people can just really sort of get get the flavor of that. But yeah, it's it's called My Teacher's Gifts and, uh, and Tom's poem starts out like this. I once had a teacher who taught me to read and how to spell words that I someday would need. How could she have known where that someday would lead when she shared her gift with me? I once had a teacher who taught me to sing A song in your heart is such a wonderful thing. I wonder if she knew the joy that would bring when she shared her gift with me. You know, as teachers, so that poem goes on, and and it's absolutely wonderful. But, you know, I I often think as teachers, you know, people ask me why I want to teach, why I teach, and and I always tell them, well, because I want to live forever, and and they kind of give me this (laughs) funny look. And and I say, look, you know, money runs out, and machines fall Mm -hmm. apart, and beauty fades, but when we teach somebody something, that is truly the only thing that can be passed down from generation to generation. And so I truly believe that when we teach, we live forever. And so, you know, that's what also, you know, that's why I'm so also excited about this book, Inspiration for Teachers, because it is a collection of amazing stories. And when we hand these stories down, whether it's to a teacher who has just retired, you know, as a retirement present, mm-hmm. or we give this book to someone who just earned their teaching credential and is about to start. I truly believe that through these shared stories, teachers live forever, and and we've just Mm -hmm. got to make sure that these stories continue to be told, to be read, and and to be lived out. So true. To me, in a nutshell, teachers, every day, every time we're in the classrooms, you have an opportunity to leave a legacy of love. Absolutely. Absolutely. Lessons from non-traditional classroom, Wisdom from My Elders, by your wife, Megan Kajitani. Absolutely, yeah, it's uh, Megan, 
And uh, this is, you know, not not to be biased, but I'm totally biased in that this is one of my absolute favorite <laughs> stories in the book. And, and you know, it's funny because I've told, you know, I've heard her tell this story to our, our own children around the dinner table quite mm-hmm. a few times. And so when the opportunity came up, I said, you've got to submit this story for for consideration into this book because it's just this brilliant lesson about, first of all, not every classroom looks like a classroom, right? Sometimes mm-hmm. our classroom is being out in nature. Sometimes our classroom is, you know, being at the store or being in a tough situation. For for Megan, uh, for Megan, you know, being in the classroom where she was teaching uh, senior citizens in a summer program, and uh, you know, she went in that first day and she thought she she had a plan, and she quickly found out that that plan absolutely did not work, and so. You know, she had a choice to make, and and she had to choose between sticking with her plan that clearly was not working uh, with these senior citizens or putting her pride aside, you know, taking a deep breath and sort of coming up with a new plan. And fortunately, she chose to come up with a new plan. She totally ended up rocking it the next day in the classroom. (laughs) And it's just this absolutely brilliant reminder and, and, Mm -hmm. and sort of lesson on, hey, you know, sometimes we sometimes we go in with a plan, sometimes that plan doesn't work, and we've got to switch plans. And I've always said, you know, the, sometimes the best days of teaching happen to come right after the absolute worst days of teaching. And so for Megan, this was for Megan, this was absolutely one of the her absolute best days of teaching, and not surprising at all, it came right after her abs one of her absolute worst days of teaching. And so you know with with teaching, with being a teacher, there is a lot of joy and there's a lot of opportunity for fun and creativity, but there is also a, a, a great humility that sometimes comes with, with being a teacher and with interacting with students, whether those students are kindergarten students or whether those students are senior citizens. And Megan's story just illustrates this and brings this to life you know, with, with utter brilliance. When I read the story, it just reminded me of the conversation I always have with my mom. She grew up in the generation where when you're old enough, it's kitchen 101. It's not grade school. But anyway, she always had this great saying that no matter how much wealth you have accumulated, no matter how much knowledge you have studied in school, I would always have tasted more salt of life than you have. And basically, in short, wisdom. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, love that. Very nice. <laughs> so, just reminded me of that and said, "Yes, ma'am. Uh-huh. Sure." <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Chapter 8, Breaking Through, and the story is A Hawk in a Pigeonhole by Ilana Long. Yeah, Ilana's story really sort of hits the hits at the heart of a, you know, a a topic I think that we're really dealing with as a really as a nation and as a society right. today. But she, mm-hmm. she talks about a, a student that she had uh, named Hana, a, a female student she had named Hana, who basically made an announcement one day in class that, you know, she was no longer Hana, and uh, now he is Henry. And she, you know, got up and, and told her classmates and her teacher that, uh, you know, she – you know, she felt that she was really a boy and had been her whole life and requested that they all start uh, calling her Henry as well. And um, the students, you know, fortunately were very, very supportive. Um, and really, it's, again, it's this topic that I think as a country and in every school, we're, 
we're grappling with, whether it is, you know, gender-neutral bathrooms or bullying mm-hmm. problems and things like that. And, and so, like I said earlier, not every story and inspiration for teachers, you know, is this sort of feel-good story that, that just, you know, where things are very easy. But this was a real struggle for this student, and I'm sure continues to be to this day. Um, but but it was such an opportunity and, and such such just an honor to be able to really bring modern day issues into this book and and to show that you know not uh, sometimes as teachers we sort of realize that we haven't been handling things well until we look back on them and that's that's really what uh, Ilana sort of also exemplifies with this story is boy you know if you know as a teacher I can't believe you know I can't believe how how I hadn't thought about things two weeks ago, and I, I can only mm-hmm. imagine what I or what I won't. I'll realize I won't have thought about two weeks from now. Um, but she really brings this story about Henry to life, and and mm-hmm. really puts it out. You know, puts it out there for for everyone to read about. And it really is uh, kind of one of those stories that that makes you stop and and pay attention. So true. It's not about right or wrong. It's life. This is it. Yeah. As teachers, we can control, you know, maybe what we, what we teach and how we teach. But one thing mm-hmm. that we can't control are the students that walk into our doors every single day. And and so, really, the only path forward as a teacher is to accept and to love and to teach every single student that comes in to the best of our ability. Beautifully put. Chapter nine: Learning from the Students, the Shoelaces by Sandy Connelly. Camelli, yeah, Sandy's story is great, but uh, you know it really just uh, again it, she talks about how uh, with her class they arranged to help a, a student in need, um, and they ended up getting you know a new a really nice new pair of shoes for a student, and and so the story just kind of follows her experiences over the years with thinking that she may have known who these shoes went to or over the year the school year of you know maybe she knew who these shoes belong to maybe she didn't and she had her suspicions and things like that and it's one of those stories where it all makes sense in the end but as you're sort of traveling on this journey with sandy and and following these shoes and these shoelaces not only do we realize that it is in our small decisions to give that often bring about you know the greatest appreciation and comfort in somebody else's life but it also helps us realize that sometimes something as small as shoelaces can mm-hmm. end up setting the tone and making the difference for not only how students react to us, but how they treat each other. And the story ends up being just a beautiful story, not necessarily about a teacher helping students, but how students help each other, especially mm-hmm. in economically depressed communities. And just absolutely wonderful. It's the connection that we are people, regardless. Yeah, yeah. So true. Regardless, and, and that transcends, sometimes that transcends age, that transcends you know, race and class. Sometimes it doesn't, mm-hmm. but uh, a lot of times it does. Mm-hmm. So true. Chapter 10, The Quiet Ones, The Smallest Sign by John Buentello. Yeah, John's story is great. It's just a just a fascinating story. You know, he basically it's a story about a teacher, you know, giving a kid their their first book. And uh you know, I I don't 
I don't remember what my first book, the first book anybody ever gave me was, but I know that, you know, my parents sort of instinctively put me in this position to love literature and to love books and things like that. For a student whose parent is concerned with, you know, keeping a roof over their head or putting food on the table might not necessarily be the highest priority, you know, over, you know, compared to reading their child the latest bedtime story. And so Mm -hmm. this is just a great story about giving a kid the first book. And, and, you know, we give the teacher gives the the child a book, not expecting anything necessarily or thinking anything is going to happen, but just because it's the right thing to do and ends up hearing back from the student many years later, just about how appreciative they were about the fact that the the teacher gave them that book and uh and you know we never know you give somebody a story you give somebody a book it, it may change their morning it may change their school year it may end up changing their entire life not just because of the story in the book or whatever lesson the story uh whatever whatever lesson the story says but also because somebody like a caring teacher took the time to think about the student and give them that book and so it just really is one of those stories where you realize the power of what giving a book uh, can do for somebody and that's why i really hope everybody will give a copy of inspiration for teachers to a teacher who who needs it or to somebody who needs it because it really if it can work for a kindergarten student it can work for an adult as well fantastic what was the most compelling story for you Gosh, I mean, you you named you named a lot of them. Um, I, there were a couple of stories that I absolutely loved. Mike McCroby has a story in there called "Still mm-hmm. Teaching" about uh, you know he's he's sort of all grown up and he's playing softball in a softball tournament uh, with his friends, and they end up in the final match against of the softball tournament against none other than all of their former teachers who uh, are now, now, I guess, retired and joined a softball league. And so, you know, they, they sort of, I think they, uh, basically they, they end up playing and there's a cash prize involved and, and it's just uh, the teachers, you know, end up doing one thing. And so the, with the, with the money and the, you know, Mike and his teammates have to decide what to do. And, and really what it is, is it's just this brilliant reminder that, you know, even when we're older, even when we've graduated, our teachers just keep on showing up. They may show up as a reference in a conversation. They may show up on the softball field. They may show up just as we're thinking about something or having to make a decision. But as teachers, mm-hmm. they just, you know, as te- teachers never stop teaching. You may be not be in their classroom any more you may not be at the school anymore but teachers never stop teaching and that truly is just not only the spirit of of the book inspiration for teachers but just an important lesson for all of us to to remember and so that was that was a story that i really really loved among many others fantastic where can someone go to get more information about you buy your books and keep up with your latest happenings yeah, well, the Chicken Soup for the Soul Inspiration for Teachers, pretty much, you know, wherever you would expect to be able to find a book, whether online or, or in a bookstore. Uh, and then my personal website, which has all, a lot of the information about my speaking and, and the rapid mathematician and things like that, is just my name, alexkajitani.com. That's A-L-E-X-K-A-J-I-T-A-N-I.com. 
Of course, I'm on a mission to make sure every kid masters their times tables so they can be confident in math and in life, and that website is multiplicationnation.com. And then, Mm -hmm. of course, Chicken Soup for the Soul, uh, their website has all the information not only on inspiration for teachers but also on uh, all of the amazing books that they put out you know, every single month. So I would check out uh, all of those websites. Fantastic. Given the opportunity to be the Secretary of Education, what would your top three priorities be for our nation's educational system? Yeah, that is a great question, and I might have a different answer tomorrow, and I might have had a different answer (laughs) yesterday. But, uh, you know, I I think there is – Top three. I I think, first of all, you know, it's very important, I think, that we invest in in early childhood education, especially in high poverty areas. I think that the absolute best thing that we can do for our students is to get them uh, get them as, you know, as nurtured and educated as possible, you know, really in their early childhood years, probably from pre-kindergarten all the way through, you know, first or second grade. Now having my own children, I really realize how critical it is that we invest in early childhood education, again, especially in high poverty areas. You know, I I think the second thing really is, as a culture, we have stopped advocating for the arts as much mm-hmm. as we need to. And so I think we really need to to be advocates and, and be a culture and a society that advocates for the arts, whether that is, you know, drawing or painting or music or, or graphic art or, or, you know, really even physical physical education and things like that. But, but I really think advocating for the arts is something that we're not doing enough of and something that our culture should be doing more of in order to really be a, a tolerance and compassionate society. And, and then for the third thing, you know, I, I think we really have got to prioritize teacher recruitment and retention. We've got a lot of people out there that want to be teachers, that are thinking about being teachers, but they're just not sure. You know, they're not sure mm-hmm. whether it's the right career move. They're not sure about money. They're not sure about public perception of teachers. They're not sure about whether it's how they want to spend their life. And, and so, you know, really recruiting teachers is, should be a priority, but then also paying attention to our veteran teachers, giving them teacher leadership opportunities to grow, to, to lead in our schools, to continue to promote education in, in various ways. And so, again, recruiting new teachers Huge should be a huge priority. I really like the concept of people who are what we call career changers. I think mm-hmm. career changers make some of the best teachers out there because they come into the classroom already having really valuable and relevant work experience. And then also retaining the teachers that we have, especially those veteran teachers, by giving them leadership opportunities is a huge, huge uh, a huge priority that we should be paying attention to. So maybe, maybe after, maybe after our talk today, Johnny, I will start recruiting you to be a teacher. <laughs> How can we truly measure students' achievement? Ooh, yeah, that's a that's a good uh, that's a good question. You know, it, I think you know. First of all, we really we really sort of. We really sort of got to start by asking ourselves what achievement really is. So we've got these, you know, 
kind of big debates uh, raging across our country. You know, is achievement test scores? Is achievement, you know, graduating from high school? Is achievement just looking at our our absence rates, things like that? I always think about a, a story that a good friend of mine, Rebecca Milwaukee, who was the 2012 National Teacher of the Year, told me. And, she, you know, they sent her to China to go sort of study Chinese schools and see, you know, mm-hmm. how they do it. How do they do it? How do they get such high test scores? And how do they, you know, always do well on these international tests and things like that? And so she was basically sent over there to find out how do they do it. And she gets there and she's, you know, walking on campus, the first campus, and someone grabs her and pulls her aside and says, hey, I just got to know, how do you do it? And she says, well, how do we do what? They say, how did you create such confident, creative kids, you know, that, that are willing to, to take chances? All, you know, so much of what we do here is drill and kill and prepare kids for the test, and we really have trouble with helping them be creative and, and take mm-hmm. risks. And so everywhere she went, here she was sent to go mm-hmm. find out how they do it, and instead she finds herself explaining to everybody how we, you know, how do, you, how do we do it? How do you do it? And so we've just got to come up with a really good definition of, you know, really what achievement is. Because if we're training kids to be creative, then it's not fair to give them. It doesn't even make sense to give them a test that tests non-creative things. If we are, you know, training kids to to achieve, you know, with something that is strictly academic, then it's not necessarily fair to, or, or even right to be testing them in, you know, non-academic or, or, you know, or things that aren't directly related to the topic at hand. And so, again, coming up with what a good definition of achievement is and then really finding a way that authentically measures that as opposed to, you know, just maybe just a test on a, on a specific day. Very interesting. Very interesting. Should the teacher be held accountable for a student's academic success? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, absolutely. But, but you know what? So should the parent, and, and so should the school, and so should the community. And, and let's not forget about also holding the student actually accountable. Mm-hmm. You know, so often we think of accountability as the student must perform on the test or the teacher doesn't get their bonus or the teacher gets fired or we judge the student performance based, you know, really on grades. And so, you know, if, if we're going to really hold teachers accountable, which I do think that we should, but we also need to expand that definition of accountability because just as we've talked about so often, you know, during our time together this morning, which is if it, you know, it takes a village and it takes lots of different people. Well, if it's going to take lots of different people from lots of different aspects of a community in order to help a student be successful, then when a student is not successful, then we've got to look to that village for support and accountability as well. So true. So true. What advice do you have for someone who is contemplating on becoming a teacher? Well, I mean, my 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 advice in two words really is is go for it, is do it, you know, just, just go for it. But I also, you know, I also say, you know, do it 
do it because not just because you want to, not just because you you think that teaching is going to be something. Do it because you've got some experience in our schools. You know, you can go and volunteer in schools. You can go and you know help out. You can you can spend some time in the schools before you really decide that you want to be a teacher. A lot of times, what I see teachers do is they decide they want to be a teacher. They get their teaching credential. They start teaching, and halfway through their first year, they go, gosh, this isn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, mm-hmm. go talk, go, go, go have coffee with teachers that you know. Email me. I'd be happy to talk, tell you all about it. <laughs> but, you know, spend some time in school. The other mistake that I see a lot of times is someone thinks that they want to be a high school teacher, so mm-hmm. they go and they get trained to be a high school teacher. They don't like it, so they end up leaving the profession when really – they probably should have been, they would have been much happier as an elementary school teacher. Or mm-hmm. someone thinks they want to teach first grade, so they get trained to be a first grade teacher, and they, but really they have more of the personality to be a middle school teacher. And mm-hmm. so there's not just deciding to be a teacher, there's also that next step, which is deciding what role you best fit. It might not necessarily mm-hmm. mean that you're going to teach second grade every single year for the rest of your right. life, but, but really finding, hey, am I more of a middle school person? Am I more of a high school person or a college person or a pre-kindergarten person? And, and you really, you only know that once you actually have that experience. So my advice is absolutely you should be a teacher, but be a teacher because you've got some experience under your belt and you've had a chance to really think about what kind of teacher you want to be, both you know, philosophically as well as you know, where you'd like to be placed. Fantastic. Since our show is about people, family, and living life, would you like to share a recipe for living with our listeners this morning? Ooh, I would love to. I, I I think my my recipe for living really is is the same as my philosophy of teaching, which really boils down to two words, which which are be real. And you know when I'm when I talk about being real, I, I really being real has, you know, I'm really talking about three things. First of all, is is to be reliable, right? I mean, mm-hmm. our students know, our students and our friends, they know when we're faking it, and and the only real path to to a real recipe for living is is to just be a reliable person and i always say you know that if you really want to create a culture of compassion and, and a, an effective classroom culture you've got to do two you've got to do three things and these are the three things that i advise when i'm talking to leaders about leadership and and the three things are say please say thank you and do what you say you're going to do and when you do those three things, especially the doing what you say you're going to do part, you're really being reliable and, and thereby being real. The second part of being real is, is to just be realistic. You know, not every one of my students is necessarily going to, to be a doctor or a lawyer or maybe something even more prestigious like be a teacher. Uh, and maybe not every one of my students is going to even end up going to college, but every single one of my students is going to be, uh, is going to be a friend and is going to be a partner and a coworker and a neighbor. And so just really, really important to, to be realistic about what, you know, all of the different paths that exist for all of our students and our children and our friends as well. And the last part of, of being real is 
just to rely on who you are. You know, I, I truly believe that that everyone listening today is is enough and that you may not have all of the answers, but you've got a lot of questions that you can ask and hopefully a support network that you can go out and, and run ideas by people and things like that. And to just rely on on your style and on the things that you do and love. You know, one of the posters that I hang in my classroom is just a, I, I, it's just a way of how students have to format their homework paper, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, they, they write their name, their date, and the period on the top right-hand corner, and they write their assignment on the left, and they've got to number each problem and skip lines between their math problems and circle the final answer. The only difference is at the top of the page on this poster, I put the words Kajitani style. And so when I'm walking <laughs> around checking off homework, I don't have to say, you know, hey, Maricela, how come you didn't circle your final answer? I just say, hey, is that yeah. done in Kajitani style? She says no, and she has to fix it. But over the course of the school year, Kajitani style becomes something much more than just how you format your homework paper. You know, mm-hmm. It actually becomes a part of the culture of the classroom. And so when I walk in with a new haircut, the kids go, hey, nice haircut. That's a Kajitani style cut right there. Or once I spilled mustard on my shirt. And so I walked in after lunch and went, check it out, mustard on the shirt. That's Kajitani style. But what happens is over the year, the students begin to form their own style and Mm-hmm. You know, a loud and rambunctious student like Myra, I just get to celebrate that as Myra style or a quiet and shy mm-hmm. kid like Victor. We just get to celebrate that as Victor style and all of the weird and awkward things that our students think about mm-hmm. themselves, all of the weird and awkward things that we as as adults think about ourselves. Instead, we just get to celebrate that as our style. And again, it's all just learning to rely on who you are. So relying on who you are, being realistic, being reliable, all get mixed in with my recipe for life called Be Real. Fantastic. Alex, thank you for the great recipe for living and for spending this hour with me on From My Mama's Kitchen Talk Radio. To all our listeners, please join me in two weeks, Tuesday morning, May 9th. My guest will be novelist, screenwriter, and playwright, Thomas Sawyer. Thomas was the head writer, showrunner of the classic CBS series, Murder, She Wrote. As an Edgar and Emmy-nominated writer, Tom has sold, then written, nine TV series pilots, 100 episodes in both comedy and drama. Tom and I will be discussing his new memoir, The Adventures of the Real Tom Sawyer along with its entertaining companion book, Nine Badass Secrets for Putting Yourself in Luck's Way. For additional information about this show and future shows, please go to fmmktalkradio.com. Thank you for listening, and have a blessed week. Alex, it has been a true pleasure, sir. Thank you again. Congratulations, and have a blessed day. It's been an absolute honor. Thank you so much. I've loved talking about Chicken Soup for the Soul, Inspiration for Teachers. And uh, again, I'm going to keep bugging you to to be a teacher yourself. (laughs) Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Thanks, everybody. Listening to Love Advice with Leanne. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, hi, Leanne. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> Why, in your professional opinion, 
do you never take my calls off the air? Is this Carl? Yep, it's Carl. I mean, we had a few dates. Everything was great. I thought.、Uh... Well, you know, when you switch to Geico, you could save a lot of money on car insurance. Okay, awesome. You should call them. I will. Geico, because saving fifteen percent or more on car insurance is always a great answer. You'd have to be pretty long-winded to name all the batteries we carry at Interstate All Battery Center. That's why we got World Livestock Auctioneer Champion Blaine Lots to help us out. How about a double and a triple and a quadruple A, C, and D smoke alarm, nine volt? Watch your key fob battery. Got 'em. We install 'em. Cars, every make and model. Both motorcycles and the golf carts too. Battery check, free for you. Cordless tools, a fourteen point four down an eighteen volt power bank charger. If you need a battery, we're sure to have it, along with the expertise to find what you need. Interstate All Battery Center. Find a store near you at interstatebatteries.com/stores.